Was Churchill's hostility towards Indians driven by racism or politics? Why was it so difficult for him to grasp India's desire for independence? How did Churchill link Gandhism with the Allied cause in World War II? Did Churchill mislead the US President Roosevelt about Indian realities? Did Churchill play a shadowy role in the creation of Pakistan? Welcome to Argumentative Indians Podcast. In today's episode, while we discuss the answers to these thought-provoking questions, we also explore Churchill's role, agenda, and his callous indifference towards India during his prime ministership with Ambassador Kishan S. Rana. Hello and welcome to Argumentative Indians, a platform for honest debates. Today we are joined by a very special guest, is Ambassador Kishan Esrana, Professor Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at Diplo Foundation. He was Ambassador and High Commissioner for Algeria, Czechoslovakia, Kenya, Mauritius, Germany, and Consul General in San Francisco. He served on staff of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and is the author of the book, Churchill and India, Manipulation or Betrayal. There are over 2,000 biographies of Churchill. So one would think, why another one by an eminent Indian diplomat? What's, what's there left to be uncovered about Churchill? But this is, um, but what's notable about this book is it focuses exclusively on an aspect of Churchill that has been overlooked by most of his biographers. Whether, uh, and that is, and that is Churchill's relationship with India and whether it was overlooked um, inadvertently, which is unlikely or, or because it was not important or, or for other deliberate reasons, that's something we'd like to discuss with Ambassador Rana. So let's welcome him and let's, and let's dive straight into it. Welcome uh, Ambassador Rana. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, first of all, let's, let, let's first, why don't you tell us when there are already more than 2000 biographies of Churchill, what inspired you to pen another one? I visited Churchill College at Cambridge in 1999. And I visited Churchill Archives, which is a very important documentary center where um, in effect, the largest, the central collection on Churchill and on a number of other important figures, including Mrs. Thatcher. And uh, oh, there are about 150, 200 major personalities, political personalities, leaders who have handed over their personal papers to Churchill archives. But that's a long story worth examining. And I found that while Churchill had played a major role in India, and India figured quite prominently in his life, uh, throughout his life actually, uh, including the, it began with three years he spent in India in 1896 to 1899 as a young cavalry officer. Nobody had carried out a complete study of Churchill and India. There are studies on Churchill and Gandhi. There are studies on Churchill's role during World War II. A number of important authors have gone into this. And of course, India figures in every biography. 
of Churchill. But this holistic look at the Churchill-India connection was missing. And that's what I attempted to do. Um, you know, my publisher, um, Rutledge, has a, has a nice practice. Uh, when you send the final collection of your manuscript and supporting documents, they also ask you to identify the unique features of your manuscript. How is it different? How is it? Uh, uh, how does it fill out information that is not already available? And I took this seriously. I wrote a detailed note, and it set me thinking. And I've been uh, poring over this for quite some time. And let me give you just one example. Churchill played a major role in the partition of India. Was he the main actor? Probably not. But the contribution by each actor, including, of course, Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League, uh, all those are very closely studied. The Churchill role and the Churchill connections with Jinnah have not been studied in the depth and uh, rigor that they deserve. Let me elaborate. After the first roundtable conference, which ended in December 1931, Jinnah decided to stay on in London. And he spent four years there as a lawyer, uh, practicing in the Privy Council. And mind you, he was a brilliant lawyer, um, a king's council, as uh, they were called. And he only handled the major, highly lucrative cases, many of them at the High Court or at the Privy Council, um, House of Lords really, uh, which were the most important and the court of final appeal on such cases. Now, during those four years, we have no record, no evidence of Churchill and Jinnah meeting. Now, this seems inconceivable. Because that was the time from 29 to 35, these were the years when Churchill was strongly, vehemently, and um, one might even say um, obsessively taken up with the India issue and these, what became the Government of India Act of 1935. Churchill looked for allies everywhere in support of his cause because his was a losing cause. He got very little support from his own political party, where he became a kind of uh, outlier as a person who opposed his own party. And for that reason, his career suffered from 29 to 39, when he was left out of office, even when his party came back to power in 1935. Now, Churchill was very conscious of his public image. and. Um, it seems that they met privately, I would even say secretly, and some of the positions that Churchill took are perhaps influenced by what Jinnah told him. I mentioned this in my book, I won't get into those details. When Churchill came to power, as war broke out, 
he was immediately brought into the cabinet as the first Lord of the Admiralty, which means uh, the Minister for Naval Affairs. And uh, in a matter of six months, in February 1940, he became Prime Minister. He held that office till August 1945, when he lost the election, and he then became the leader of the opposition. And during those years, as Prime Minister, he played a critical role on India affairs, a vital role. But I come back to the question, what was Churchill's role in the creation of Pakistan? Well, one was his collaboration with Jinnah. Jinnah was built up politically by the British. Uh, most people don't remember that in the provincial elections of 1937, the Muslim League got only 24% of the vote. In those elections, like in all the elections since 1906 that took place in India, the electorate was divided into communal lines. That is, Muslims voted separately from the Hindus, the Christians, the Sikhs, and the others. And Muslims only voted for Muslim candidates. That was mandatory. The Muslim League got only 24% of the vote. And in the 14 provincial governments, it did not win a single province. From that position, Jinnah became the darling of the British uh, under the Churchill's prime ministership. And in on the 2nd of January 1941, in a letter to Churchill, he wrote uh, that I enjoy 90% of the support of the Muslims of British India. Uh, this was a gross untruth. He enjoyed sizable support, but nothing like 90%. Now, um, incidentally, that particular letter is not in the Churchill archives. I dug it out in the British National Archives, and I think the people at Churchill Archives were surprised at this. This is the first piece of direct correspondence between Jinnah and Churchill. It has the flavor, if you read the letter, it has the flavor of people who are already in communication and know each other quite well. It is certainly not anything like a first letter written by a British India leader of the Muslims writing to the British Prime Minister. There is a degree of familiarity and a degree of banality to the conversation, which is for me striking. It doesn't if sound like a go forward. We find, uh, I, I will conclude briefly, um, uh, Yajur, just give me two minutes more. We then find other bits of information that show the connection between Churchill and Jinnah. We also know that the connection was widely known to the British officials who in effect supported Jinnah and in a sense politically built him up. On this, on this there is lots of evidence. Uh, uh, this is an, an established uh, truth in uh, among Indian historians or historians of British India or the closing years of, of the empire. Uh, I would belabor the point except to say that after 1945, the one major 
action that Churchill took in relation to India was when Mountbatten met him in March 1947. Again, well documented, lots of sources. And Mountbatten told um, Churchill that Jinnah is being difficult and he is not signing on to the final deal which will lead to the partition of India. And Churchill told Mountbatten to convey a verbal message from him. And in that message, he essentially told Jinnah that this is an opportunity that you should grasp with both hands. And he basically said, I don't understand why you're not doing this. It was a kind of message that a mentor would send to a student. Uh, it was not somebody who was an apprentice under him. It had the flavor of a master and a pupil kind of relationship. Um, so all this and some of this incidentally is information that I have personally dug out. Last point, very last point. In 1946, Churchill's secretary sends a collection of papers to R.A. Butler, uh, who was the, another major leader of the Conservative Party. His nickname was Rab, R.A. Butler. And she said, I'm sending you the file on the churchill Jenna correspondence. And a month later, the secretary to Butler returns the file. Nobody has dug out those papers, but I did through lots and lots of hard work, going through all kinds of uh, papers at Churchill archives. Now, what is a file? A file is not a collection of two or three papers. There was clearly a file in existence, and that file is missing. It does not exist in the Churchill archives. I'll stop here. Thank you. That you, uh, you've got given enough for us to give become really curious now to find out more. So just for context here, you said that Churchill played a, a significant role in the creation of Pakistan. But just taking a step back, when, this, when the first two nation theory emerges in India um, pre-independence, can you give us some uh, context around why how did in Churchill's political calculations that became the favorable solution for India to be divided into two yeah. nations and why the preference for the Muslim cause? I, I get, and then how did he achieve it? Like, how did he make an impact into, uh, in the ultimate negotiation? Was it just because he was the one who, uh, who kind of made Jinnah the sole representative of all of India's Muslims? Is yes. that the way Churchill contributed? That last point is important. Churchill played a major role in that because the governor of Punjab is on record as having said in 1945 that Jinnah's claim to speak on behalf of all the Muslims of Punjab is hollow. He said there are other political leaders who also have a sizable following. But that nobody paid attention to that. Well, what was Britain's objective in partition? Now, on that, evidence comes from a letter that Roosevelt wrote to Churchill on the 10th of May, 1942. Just as, I think, maybe 12th of May. Uh, I'm not sure between the 10th and the 12th. It was on the day on which 
Crips left India at the end of what was called the Crips mission to try and find a solution. And um, that letter is uh, somewhat taunting because Roosevelt tells Churchill that you are not willing to let the Indian national movement attain self-governance. But he said you are willing to let a part of this entity break away into another state. Now that is the first clear evidence we have that Churchill was planning in 1942 to create a separate Muslim entity in South Asia. Why? The reason was British strategic planners had decided starting from 1940, you know, strategic planners of the armed forces of defense ministries really work ahead of everyone else. And they said at the end of the war, very likely there will be an autonomous entity in India. We must ensure that there is also an autonomous entity which will ipso facto always be favorable to us. And that has to be a Muslim entity. That entity would ensure that the Soviet Union would not get access to the warm water ports of the Arabian Sea, that the oil resources of the Arabian Peninsula of that entire region would be accessible to the West and that the West would have a major trump card in the region. This was the strategy. And Churchill, in effect, worked to this strategy. Now you asked, what did he do? Well, the funny thing is, he did nothing. From the time that the leaders of the Indian National Movement were put in prison on the 10th of August 1942, when the August Kranti movement started, for two and a half years they were locked away, isolated, unable to contact one another, and there was no dialogue between them and the British. Those were what I have called in my book the wasted years, when Britain could, should, and had the obligation to prepare for partition. They didn't do that. And that is also a major charge I leave at the door of Churchill, that he knew that partition was coming. He said in 1943 to uh, the Americans, to one of, the, one of Roosevelt's advisors, that there will be a bloodbath in British India, which will make previous disasters look like a picnic. But he did nothing to prevent that. And those two and a half years were the wasted years. When Weevil became Viceroy, and that was in October 1944, um, Weevil tried very hard to anticipate and prepare for the exit of British rule from India. He was not given much of an opportunity. Weevil prepared what was called the Weevil Plan. He went to London with his plan. He was made to wait for more than two months before Churchill would receive him. I mean, what nonsense is this? But this was what I have called 
governance by negligence yeah. governance by inaction and that was also churchill's major contribution and then of course uh, after the elections of july 1945 labor party came to power and from the outset they said we will quit india and they were in a hurry to leave and in that haste to leave lots and lots of things were done in an extremely hasty ill planned manner including the partition the actual boundary lines were drawn uh, by the um, uh, what is the name of that mission in uh, march april 1947 they had no time to plan anything properly would the bloodbath of partition have been smaller i imagine so i would like to believe it would have been but there would have been a bloodbath i am not for a minute saying that part the partition would have been a picnic no because you were in talking you are talking about millions of muslims and hindus who moved from one side to the other to one or the other of the two new independent states there was going to be conflict clashes and uh, turmoil but a lot of it could have been prevented a lot of it could have been prepared for that also i'm afraid is a major responsibility for which churchill must answer so going back to the strategic calculations for a minute what made britain conclude that a muslim state in south asia would be more amenable to the british than a congress led secular india that was yajur um, uh, that was self evident because from the beginning the indian national movement set its face against britain from the beginning the independence movement said that we would work for an independent india for an independent policy whereas from the beginning jinnah showed himself as a collaborator of churchill now hard evidence on this is not available but we know that jinnah's policy jinnah's posture was not one at all of any kind of a confrontation or um, shall we say defiance of britain whereas india was india saw itself as the first among many many independent entities that would emerge throughout asia and africa and the caribbean and the other parts of the world so um, it was self evident that a muslim uh, state that emerged out of british india would be pro west precisely because india was not going to be pro west india was going to be pursue an independent foreign policy and there were talked about this all the while this was crystal clear as many would remark is happening today with the ukraine war europe is baffled why india would not align with them with india chooses to chart its own uh, way independently but that is that is the whole point that the west has long held this attitude uh, which uh, is today also upheld that if you are not with us then you are obviously against us the notion of autonomous actions 
by independent states are not really liked very much as much as much by the by the west as i dare say by by the russians as well but the russians are a little more understanding because they are very much the underdogs in the rather unequal equation today between the west and the east but that's we are talking about contemporary affairs you've been, you've uh, you've shown in your book that uh, churchill and jinnah shared a close relationship and you've even argued that it was a bit of a mentor mentee relationship there um i want to understand churchill's positions jinnah as somebody as a voice of the muslims of india and interestingly for many of his post public statements it comes across that he feels strongly for the muslims of india and their cause and their anxieties about being dominated by what he sees as a hindu uh congress um but what i want to understand is was churchill here being misled by jinnah who positioned himself as the rep- sole representative of muslims or is churchill misleading the people of united kingdom and united states i think it's the latter i think it is very much the latter churchill was not misled churchill understood the realities very well in um, early 1940 before he became prime minister he told the cabinet and this is recorded it's recorded in diaries by more than one person including the splendid amery diary the leo amery diary which was written every day during the time that amery was secretary of state for india it's a wonderful resource and very very few indian researchers have read this diary sadly um in that discussion in early 1940 churchill said the conflict between the hindus and the muslims in british india is the bulwark of british rule is the british rule is founded on that division and another occasion he said we must do everything we can to accentuate that conflict between the hindus and muslims for our own benefit so churchill understood this very well uh, did jinnah not understand it yes he did but in his own way because jinnah would also have believed that he would pursue a policy that suited his country his new entity his new state which became pakistan and pakistan always looks after its interests in opposing india and in being pro west and we see that i mean all the arms that have been supplied to pakistan since 1947 by the west especially the united states um on the notion that it is against in the fight against communism but those arms have only and exclusively been used against india so uh, this is i'm afraid one of those sad truths of international affairs uh, could we have been more strategic in our actions vis-a-vis the british this is an interesting point which i do raise in my book i have no answer to it because these are what if kind of questions and what if questions you can interpret them in any way you like but um, i'll give you two examples was it wise on the part of the congress party to walk out of the provincial governments where they were in power 
out of the 14 British provinces, um, the Congress was in power in, I think, eight provinces. And at one stroke, they walked out. If they had only stayed and not walked out, the Congress would have had much greater affair influence in British India. They would have been taken more seriously by the British. A second example, launching the August 10, August Kranti movement. When you knew that, that, that the British were ready to put everybody in jail, and you remember, 70-80,000 leaders of the Congress party were put in jail overnight. The British were totally prepared for it. The British came within inches of taking the national leaders of India, Gandhi, Nehru, Patel, Monana Azad, and taking them to Uganda or Aden. Imagine what it would have meant for the national movement of India if that had happened. Fortunately, while the British cabinet decided that this should be done, Linlithgow, who was otherwise not a very brilliant man, on the this he stood firm. I think I have mentioned this earlier. Uh, and he said, this can't be done because he knew India would go up in flames. So there, this is part of a larger picture. There are observers who believe Nehru was a great leader. I mean, who am I to question the greatness of Nehru? But greatness does not mean that we should not take a critical look and look at the totality of a person. And that is where Nehru's actions on foreign affairs are found a little bit wanting. Uh, even on some other act, uh, but I will, I'm not talking about Jawala Nehru. In this no, no, but of course, we do that with the benefit of hindsight. It's hard to know exactly in the front view and the things you see and um, the decisions you take in the heat of the moments. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine the mo the times of 1942 and how the passions right. were high in those times. But on Nehru, as well as in the Congress in general, I thought something was very interesting that you pointed out in your book that again and again, Churchill, in his criticism of Congress or his refusal to work with, to see them as the representative of India, he portrays them as a sort of a representative Hindus, a Hindutva or upper caste Hindus. And the, the scenario that he highlights, which uh, uh, post-independence, if Congress were to lead the country, would be a scenario of Hindu supremacy of sorts, where the minorities would be suppressed. Yes. In 2023, it seems baffling to me when every day we are told on social media and WhatsApp messages are informing us that how Congress has always been anti-Hindu and from Nehru and Gandhi, all these leaders are now projected as anti-Hindu. It seems a bit almost like amusing to see that it was exactly the other way around. And in, in Churchill's view, these were the Hindutva guys. These were the Hindu supremacists of 1940s. Um, so we'd like to hear more about this. Like how, how did this work view come about that's and how did Churchill manage to project them? That's a very interesting point. That's a very interesting point that the same Indian leader, the same Congress party and the same Nehru whom we now see or at least a large portion, a significant portion of Indian public opinion holds as um, not sufficiently pro-Hindu were seen by Churchill 
as the absolute um, uh, what absolute um, classic example of oppression that hindus would carry out carry out vis-a-vis -vis muslims you know this is um, it's a blend of several factors there is an element of political calculation in this by Churchill, because he wants to show uh, the uh, national movement essentially as a partisan religious movement, which it was not, absolutely not. Partly, it also shows something of Churchill's total lack of understanding of India. Churchill had his mental image of India was framed at the end of the 19th century. And he did not budge one inch from that image. You know, in 1936, uh, Gandhiji sent two emissaries to meet Churchill. One was G.D. Birla and the other was uh, Miraben, uh, the British lady who was a follower of Gandhiji. Her name was uh, Slade, Mary Slade. And when both of them met Churchill separately, individually, at different times, but within months of each other, Churchill was amazed to find that there were roads that connected some of the villages of India. He couldn't imagine that the villages of India were connected with the outside world. Now, mind you, villages were connected up to a point. They were not really fully connected as they are today. But we are talking of the mid-30s. So Churchill had this mental image which was totally outdated. He had his political calculation. It suited him to frame the issues of India in racist and religious terms. Um, and the two were mingled together. And the Muslims were favored, not because he had any particular love for uh, Muslims, but because it was politically expedient. And on top of it, there was a major racist element in his uh, words, in the language he used, and in the examples he gave. i give you one example. Gandhi was called, Gandhiji was called the half-naked fakir. Now, this is a derogatory term. But it is derogatory in a sense of cultural uh, atrocity. Because why did Gandhiji wear the half dhoti that he did? And I give this example in my book. I analyze this a little bit. When Gandhiji returned to India in 1915, he arrived at the docks as a Kathiawari middle-class person wearing a turban and traditional Kathiawari attire. And the Indian press of Bombay poked fun at him and said, this goes to show how much out of touch Mohandas Gandhi is with the reality of India. Nobody dresses like this anymore. Now Gandhiji was a, a 
brilliant thinker and he understood that if he wanted to connect with India, the only way he could connect with them was through his personal image. He had no access to the media. He had no guarantee that his speeches would be covered anywhere or would even be read anywhere in the interior of India. So he said, how do I show myself as one, one who identifies with the poorest people of India? And he said, he must have thought and thought and decided to wear the half dhoti. The half dhoti through the length and breadth of India is what is worn by the farmer when he works in the fields. The same farmer puts down the, the, the dhoti and wears it uh, more fully when covering his lower part of his legs as well. But the half dhoti is what he wears as a working farmer. And you remember Gandhiji said in those memorable words, my life is my message. And there, what he also meant was, my image is my message. And this was a brilliant act of image management by Gandhiji. Way back in the period immediately after 1915, uh, the Aspen Institute of Colorado carries out uh, studies, um, uh, intellectual discourse on various issues. And it gives this particular example of Gandhiji's attire as the way in which he politically identified himself with the ordinary people of India. Now, Churchill was offended by this and he made the term half-naked fakir into a derogatory term. But behind that term is a huge act of cultural um, assassination, I would say, because you are deliberately using an image of another culture, linking it with your own culture and um, using it to create a false image. Uh, incidentally, there is a humorous element to this. Gandhiji at the uh, second roundtable conference was invited like Everyone else was who was a participant in the second roundtable conference of 1932. And after the reception at the Buckingham Palace, Gandhiji was asked by the British media, did you not feel embarrassed going to meet His Majesty the King wearing... Um, the short attire that you normally wear, along with a shawl. And Gandhiji said, no, I didn't. Because His Majesty the King wore enough clothing for both of us. Yes. I mean, this was Gandhiji's ready wit. And it turned what was a derogatory cultural comment into a humorous repost. He knew how to rile the British. And, and rightfully so, Churchill saw Gandhi's rise as a dangerous threat. You said that, and you argued that, and you, you asserted that in your book. So there we see somewhat of Churchill's prescience. Even in early days of the nationalist movement, he sees Gandhi as a major threat. Yes. And it's not the one that he can easily 
denounced. While Nehru, he calls him a radical communist or a Hindutva supremacist, it is very difficult for him to take on Gandhi because while Churchill is arguing that we would that he would not work with Congress, which is not representative of India's minorities and the depressed classes, Gandhi is working precisely for those. People. He is working on the Hindu-Muslim unity. He's working for the lower caste. Exactly. It's very difficult for Churchill to take on Gandhi. And that I thought was fascinating. And it's, it's almost shocking for me that he goes to the extent of linking Gandhi with the access cause during World War II. This is something that even the wildest mind in India, among even among the most crazies, of the India's tall armies could not even conjure up to link Gandhi with the Axis cause or to link him with with Hitler exactly. or, the Jap or the Japan. Exactly. And tell you us know, a little bit more about this. What was what was going on there? This is again quite fascinating. See, it was in 1932 that Churchill first made an extraordinary, bizarre lie about India. He said that the Congress Party of India, Gandhi, the um, Brahmins are going to bring Germans to India to carry out oppression of Muslims. I mean, this is it's a, it's a bizarre idea. Who would think of bringing Germans into India? German Janissaries. These are mercenary troops. Who, in what capacity? Could a national movement bring Germans to carry out oppression in India? As if the British would simply stand by and watch, as if this is something that could be done. I mean, it was a lie of monstrous proportion. And Churchill carried on in the same way exactly 10 years later when he came out with this equally ridiculous, I would say even more ridiculous statement that the objective of the Congress party, of the Brahmins, the upper castes, was to sign a peace with Japan. And there was no hint of it whatsoever. And to permit Japanese troops to go through India, through Asia, to help the German army that was fighting against the Soviets. Now, it makes no sense in geography, in logistics, in terms of capabilities of a Japan, which by mid-42 was bogged down in Asia. It was making no more headway. It made brilliant gains for the first two, three months. And after that, it was bogged down in Malaya, in Burma, and in China where also they were fighting against both the communists and the KMT who had joined together to fight against the Japanese. Now, can an expeditionary force go through Asia, through the mountains and the deserts of Central Asia and to link up with the German forces in Europe? I mean, this is nonsense. But he wrote about this to Roosevelt in official correspondence. And he said, this is India's policy. Now, I mean, this is 
not only a figment of imagination, it's fantasy in the extreme. And it's because U.S., you, like you said, uh, U.S. and especially Roosevelt was pressurizing Churchill to uh, to come exactly. to some sort of self-government self-governance status for India. Exactly. And so Churchill was willing to go to any extent to prevent that, even to the extent of uh, alleging that Indians, Indian nationalists, were sympathizers of the Axis powers. Yes. Yes. But you see, Yajur, I should mention one other interesting point. Uh, it is when you carry out comparative study that facts emerge, which you had not, which you knew, but you had not linked up together. Pearl Buck, a great novelist who won the Nobel Prize, um, was a great friend of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And she wrote a personal letter to Eleanor uh, immediately after Pearl Harbor, where she said that the colored people of India are unifying against others. She served a warning to the Roosevelts that you better think of how India and China and other colored people, although she didn't specify any nationality, are going to come to a degree of political unity. And Roosevelt understood this immediately. And he told his wife, I am going to force Churchill to give self-governance to India. He failed in that. But neither Roosevelt knew nor Nehru knew that Nehru was also a corresponding friend of Pearl Buck. So Pearl Buck is a common link between these two great leaders, Roosevelt and Nehru. One of the failures of Nehru, incidentally, is that neither Nehru nor the others in the Congress party understood the value of the role that the United States could play. Only one letter was sent to Roosevelt by Gandhiji, and that was very late in July 1942. Nehru did not write to Roosevelt. Nehru had plans to visit the US in 1940, but he didn't go. He then decided to send Krishna Menon. But Krishna Menon found that he could not go because the British would not authorize his passport for travel to the US. I mean, here was a major failure in understanding the role of the United States. Again, strategic thinking. Now, you may say the Congress Party had its hands full with the national movement, but somebody should have thought of the larger context which did not happen. So, uh, well, from my personal experience, I think this this is something that still exists among Indians that we tend to conflate between Americans and the Brits. Yes, they are close allies and they're strategically aligned on many important things, but that does not mean they are the same, which I think there tends to be the, right. the attitude among a lot of Indians, even today, um, the, the, the Americans are very different and they have a very different worldview and there is no reason to club the two together as a lot of Indians do. I think, I think that's a very, very perceptive comment, Yajur, because I will say very briefly 
that yes, I don't think we see the complexity of the Americans. We simply judge them in terms of, you know, they are pro-Pakistan. But it's not that. The I'll, Americans I'll see the world from another perspective. It would pay us to try and understand that perspective rather than give labels and say, oh, the wretched Americans are pro-Pakistan. They are not pro-Pakistan. They are pro-America. Like we are pro-India. That's noble. Exactly. And I think it's a vast and complex country with its own social and political forces, which at times align with those in Britain, but not always. And it's, a, it's important to treat the two separately and... And yeah, anyway, so you mentioned that some of these facts come up when you're conducting this kind of comparative studies, but otherwise they've been overlooked. And many of the facts that you have brought out in this book were absolutely new to me and, I, and I'm no, no new reader of, of, the, of, of this period. So I want to ask you, if India was such, so central to church's policies and actions, for a large part of his career, how did these things get overlooked by so many of his biographers who've written vast tomes uh, on his life and works? How did this not show up? You've, you've gone as far as to argue that he had an obsession with India. And then how does this not get, why has this not studied and researched more in the last 75 years? You ask a question to which I am unable to really give an answer. I'll give, you, I'll give you a different example. Gandhiji wrote one letter to Churchill in his entire life. Uh, yes, he wrote a note to Churchill in, in um, 1907 asking for an appointment to meet him when he took a South African delegation to meet Under Secretary of State Churchill. But that's another small episode. In 1944, in August 1944, he wrote a moving letter to Churchill, where he begins by saying that you have often called me a half-naked fakir, and I write to you in that capacity. And then he goes on to say that for the sake of my people, for the sake of the people of Britain, and for the sake of the people of the world, should we not engage in direct communication? I mean, it's a short letter, beautifully written, eloquent. And you know what Churchill did? He didn't reply. And 10 months later, Gandhiji published the letter. He said, I sent this letter to Winston Churchill in July 1944. I waited for 10 months for a reply. And the response that he received from the Viceroy's office was that this letter had not been received. I mean, this was a ridiculous situation. So you ask, I think you asked earlier, why did Churchill not communicate with Gandhi? Gandhiji did it utmost to communicate. He sent these two emissaries in 1936. In 1941 and early 42, he sent a British clergy woman, a lady, to meet Leo Avery, Secretary of State for India, because uh, he knew that there was no chance whatsoever of directly contacting Winston Churchill as Prime Minister. And again, there was no response at all. Avery gave a wishy-washy reply, 
And when this lady said, do you have any message you want to convey to Gandhiji? And Emery said, uh, convey to him my good wishes. That was it. So why did Churchill behave in this churlish, caddish, and thoroughly impolite fashion? I have no answer to that. But again, this great man, and he was, Churchill was a great man. Churchill has to his credit enormous achievements. The World War II is only one part of it. The man was ahead of his times in terms of the way he thought about governance. Do you know that he introduced pensions in the British system? Learning from the German example in 1910 and 1911. So he was a great administrator, a great thinker. But when it came to India, all this came to nothing. He behaved in a manner that was beyond the pale. And his biographers have chosen to either neglect this or to distort the reality to suit their own wishes, their own fashion. Now, I hope one of those biographers would read my book and publicly write a review and criticize me, attack me and say that my book is deficient on these counts. And I'm sure there are deficiencies, but that's not the point. None of us has a full understanding of the truth. We are all grouping in our own ways. But I would like debate, right? I would like a serious debate on yeah. this book, a discussion yeah. on this book in the West. I mean, it's very nice that my friends in India uh, have read the book and some reviews have been published and some more are perhaps in the pipeline. But I would love to come across a review of the book written in the West by a Western author. And let tear the book to shreds. After all, I don't claim that I have all the answers at all. I am also grouping. But I've tried to present a perspective which uh, I think... Uh, Deserves attention. Could it, I think maybe, it, maybe this is a good time for us to bring in any questions and comments that people may have, Yajur, if that fits in with your thinking. Do, do you think that um, it, it's possible that Churchill did not want to engage with Gandhi because he knew that he was not on the morally the right side? It yes. got, I think one of the lines that you have in your book, he says in, in Churchill's own words, of course, I strongly oppose Mr. Gandhi from the political standpoint, but I have the greatest admiration for his work for the moral and social. Yes, he said those things. He said and, those very flattering things. And for expulsion of Britain from India. And he, as the Prime Minister of Britain, could not allow that. So even though he knows that he's in the wrong side, he, so is that possibly an advantage? Yes, that is wish? a fact. That is an element that has to be considered. You know, I don't, you know, mine is only one book. I mean, there is only so much that I could write about. Uh, but that is a perspective that should be considered. That uh, he was essentially presenting a certain political position, which he had to defend. I am perfectly willing to uh, accept that line of argument. Because I just want to get, to get some perspective. There are those who view Churchill as 
and outright bigot and racist and all sorts of things. And it's, that seems a bit too simplistic because at the same time, there are these counter examples where he goes, he publicly condemns the Jallianwala Bagh incident. He, yes. he makes sure General Dyer is uh, far, far sacked. And so he's one of those people who makes a very strong uh, criticism in the British Parliament against what happened at Jallianwala Bagh. So it's very, it seems too, simplistic, too simplistic to just dismiss him as an, an as a racist. But at yeah, the same time, uh, he devoted his life against India's um, in cause of independence to deprive Indian people of freedom uh, and liberty. And which is all the more shocking because he's the man who's probably made, given the maximum number of quotes on freedom and liberty. <laughs> it's still quoting. See, Yajur, Yajur, I think a, a different way of interpreting this is to view Churchill's India connection in terms of phases in Churchill's life. And I have in my book presented that and said that the period from 1896 to about 1921 was a period of a kind of benign indifference towards India, but occasionally showing understanding. The period from 1922 to 1939 was of unreasoning, extravagant, over-the-top opposition to gradual glacial movement towards self-government in India. And the period of 1940 to 1945, when he was Prime Minister, was the time of active manipulation and betrayal of India. We've not uh, touched on the uh, Great Indian Famine of 1942-44. We had a fine discussion on that two weeks back, and I don't want to rehash that, but I would uh, commend to your audience that is a discussion uh, record that is worth uh, watching, worth understanding, because I don't think we ourselves come out so brilliantly in that, in terms of our actions after independence. But that's another story. But you're right. Uh, Churchill is a complex man, and his views and his actions towards India can be seen also in terms of those three phases. And then, of course, the end phase when he's no longer uh, prime minister or he's prime minister, but in declining health. I will end this comment with one quote. In 1953, there was a conference in Bermuda of the leaders of the United States, France and Britain. And at that conference, Churchill told the President Truman and the French Prime Minister that the departure of Britain from British India is going to show the incompetence of these newly independent countries in managing their affairs. So Churchill did not believe that these countries could manage their affairs. And, you know, nobody gives us credit. And this is where uh, the leadership of Nehru and of Jinnah and other Pakistan leaders has to be also commended. Because in both these countries, the new leaders took control of governance. And they 
held their countries together and they began the process of building up their own countries in their own ways, in their own fashion. Nehru had one vision, the Pakistan leaders had a different vision, but nobody could say that these two countries collapsed when the British left India. That just, that just goes back to Churchill's overarching philosophy that in India is the white man's burden. They are there for the Indians, not for themselves. They are protecting Indians from the Japanese during the World War. They are there because Indians can't govern themselves. That is a typical colonial propaganda that he was a product of, of the 19th, 19th century of colonial propaganda, which I'm afraid still, uh, still shows up when having conversations with many people from Britain, even today. It's, it's so ingrained in their thinking. But, uh, and, and it seems like in that comment with President Henry Truman, it's still there in his mind, even after India is already independent, right? Yes, there is that. There is this feeling of the white man's burden. Uh, but then, you know, we as independent states, and now I refer not just to India or Pakistan, but all the countries of the global south, we have to take better control of our own image. We have to project our actions in a larger perspective. And we have to kind of build new friendships and new connections uh, across the globe, which show our competence, our ability to manage not only our affairs, but to act as significant players in world affairs. And this is a continuous challenge that we all face. Um, there's, there's two things that I, well, you've kind of alluded in your book, um, but we have there, um, but I'd like to get a little more of your insights on that. One is the post-World War uh, order where for the first, the, the beginning with the Atlantic Charter in 1941 and after it, the end of World War II, the, the creation of United Nations, you alluded that Churchill played a role in keeping India out of this post-war world order. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that's... Uh, Yajur, I don't want to get too much into this because I've talked about it in my book. I think uh, it has to be read uh, uh, to try and understand my perspective. But I add immediately that there are my own colleagues, my friends, who tell me that uh, perhaps... I'm not entirely right, that Churchill and the Atlantic Charter may not have played such a big role in the uh, architecture of the United Nations. Uh, I have presented a perspective, I presented a viewpoint, and maybe there are others who need to uh, think of this and examine and perhaps refute this perspective. But I do believe that the Atlantic Charter had a powerful influence on the shape that emerged at the end of the Second World War. And um, we as countries of the Global South perhaps could have played our cards uh, better in different ways. But then that's a, that opens a great big set of new questions, which obviously... Uh, <laughs> one author is not going to be able to tackle and certainly not in one book. Uh, but uh, Churchill's uh, 
manipulation of the Atlantic Charter and its impact on the post-war order definitely deserves deeper study. And in the post-war order, another thing that has not been given much credit while was the contribution of India to World War II. Um, and I wanted to get your view, uh, while Churchill was the prime minister during World War II, was there yeah. public acknowledgement of the role India was playing financially and uh, in terms of yes. human capital? All right. That is a point. Others have made it before. I don't go into this in any great detail because I did not feel uh, competent really to uh, speak at length about this. But um, today, the Second World War is part of old history almost. Uh, I, I think what counts today is the contribution we make today and tomorrow in world affairs. So I would really um, like to end my conversation um, with, with these points that India has to be, um, what should I say? Uh, India has to reflect better in the ways in which it can play a more vigorous, a more active role. And I think we're doing that. I think we're doing that. Uh, we've been doing that over the years. And perhaps after 1991, the economic reforms launched by P.V. Narsimha Rao, who is sadly forgotten, but who was really the architect of that great second liberation of India, India's liberation from itself, we could say. And then subsequent uh, leaders, including Atal Bihari Vajpayee um, and um, Narendra Modi, and perhaps we can add to that list also uh, Manmohan Singh. These are all the different prime ministers who have taken India forward on the global stage of world affairs. I think India's day is brighter and will be brighter. India's role will be more um, participatory, more uh, influential in the years to come. But it all comes back to our managing our own affairs and achieving a degree of economic growth of raising standards of living in our country, of eradicating poverty, eradicating disease and the other failures. And ultimately, you know, each country has to decide for itself what it can or cannot do. Absolutely. Let's, let's bring in some audience questions as well. Um, Please. One of the questions I have is, was Clement Attlee also to some level inconsiderate towards Partition. Well, I guess. Uh, sorry, I, I I didn't get the question. Was Attlee, uh, the Prime Minister, succeeding yes. Churchill, also to some level inconsiderate towards partition? I guess you could say it may be indifferent. You know, I don't know if inconsiderate is the right word. Certainly, yeah, the manner in which partition was carried out was hasty. Uh, Attlee had given himself a deadline and he wanted to keep that. And Mountbatten was even, as uh, Viceroy, as the last Viceroy, was even more hasty. And he pushed, I think the original deadline was 
1948, middle of 1948, Britain should leave uh, India. Uh, uh, Mountbatten did his utmost to expedite that date and perhaps may have contributed somewhat, inadvertently for sure, uh, to uh, some of the chaos that ensured. But I am not a student of that part, that um, phase of uh, transfer of power, as it is called. Uh, there are other historians who have exhaustively studied this. So I uh, can't claim to speak with any authority on this. But certainly, Attlee played his own role, maybe inadvertently. What is your take on the Britain's assertion that they saved India from the Japanese? <laughs> saved India from the Japanese? I think, I think it is the Indians who saved themselves from the Japanese. After all, the Indian troops were the largest element of the fighting forces uh, against Japan in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, this is a little amusing because the real role played in the war against Japan was by the Americans. It was the Pacific War. It was the pressure that the Americans put on Japan, which essentially led to the end of that part of the war. Because as you know, the war in Europe ended several months before the war in uh, uh, East Asia or in Southeast Asia ended. Uh, I think the larger role was absolutely played by the Americans. The British were a side element. Um, and you remember uh, when immediately after Pearl Harbor, uh, Britain was shocked out of its wits when it found its two great battleships had been sunk. Uh, the Japanese had marched into Malaya, had captured Singapore, and uh, were marching into Burma. And uh, Japan was rampant. And it was the army that fought against Japan, Indians and British and Southeast Asians, who kind of held the balance and who bogged down the Japanese. But um, I think by, by the middle of 42, it was fairly clear that Japan was in no condition to surge any further into Asia. Yes, there was one last throw of the dice, so to speak, by Japan, and that was the Battle of Imphal in 44, when they made a final desperate effort. But it was a it was a dying grasp of a nation that was already on the way to defeat. Uh, I think the British came to the assessment by about June, July 42, and this is available from documents, that Japan was no longer a major threat in uh, Asia. And we tend to forget the huge role played by China in the battle against Japan. The biggest burden of the attack of Japan was borne by the Chinese, um, by both the KMT government and by the communist government. And these two who were, at, who were in a civil war against each other since 1929, 
they came together to fight Japan. And uh, that role, the role played by China in the ending of World War II is also very much under-recognized by many historians. But it was in China that Japan was truly bogged down. And incidentally, India played a role because there was an air bridge that was established which ferried supplies from the northeast of India into China. And there was a road that was built, the Stillwell Road. It was built by General Stillwell. And it was called the Stillwell Road. Uh, it was a very rough and ready road, but it worked. It carried supplies. So there again, it was India and China that played a collaborative role. Of course, India was under British rule. <laughs> when China was... Excuse me. And China was also in the midst of its own civil war, even while the battle against Japan went on. It was a very uh, confusing situation. But that's how history is. History doesn't give us neat answers. Right. Okay. Um, the next one. The various uh, derogatory comments about Indians and Hindus by Churchill were not uncommon for that time in the Western world. Then why single out Churchill? Very good question. Uh, they were not uncommon. But even by the standards of those days, the 20s and 30s, Churchill's comments were over the top. Churchill said that Gandhi should be trodden by an elephant with the viceroy riding the elephant and should be torn to pieces. It was said in a, in a humorous, semi-humorous way at a dinner gathering uh, after a fair amount of consumption of alcohol, no doubt. But it showed a degree of personal antipathy. And since the 20s, Churchill openly advocated that Gandhi should be externed, should be taken out of India taken to a remote island where nobody would pay attention to him. Now tell me, is this how you deal with national movements? Is this how you deal with a whole process of self-governance which began in India way back at the early years of the 20th century? The Minto reforms were part of that process going back to 1906. So uh, even by the standards of that age, uh, Churchill was um, hostile and um, nasty to a degree that is hard to justify, hard to understand. It's more than politics. There is an element of personal anger I find it very interesting that people always come up with this uh, argument that, oh, he was a man of his times, but so was Hitler, so was Stalin. Exactly. Like, that, doesn't, that doesn't make it all right. That doesn't right. make them uh, worthy of the hero status that they have been accorded. Um, th the fact that anti-Semitism was very common in those days, that does not absolve Hitler from the kind of views he 
he publicly advocated and, and practiced. Anyway, so it's interesting. I've noticed over the years three kinds of defense of Churchill on these matters. The first type is that says, no, he was not a racist. All the comments that are, at, are uh, they try to attribute the comments either to the caustic British humor or to hearsay. Uh, that these are these not from his public speeches. And Churchill was quite cautious not to use such comments in public speeches. They are usually drawn from post-private conversations. Um, then the second kind of defense I've seen is, oh, he was a man of his times, was very common. And the third is, yes, he was racist, but that, does not, that did not influence his actions. Look at only his actions, don't care about his words. These are the three defensive arguments I've seen. Yajur, uh, uh, let me slightly correct your first point that he did not, Churchill did not make these racist comments only in private, publicly, in on record speeches, in speeches he made in parliament, for example, he came across as enormously racist. Uh, so that is uh, an important point. Yes, um, defenders of Churchill. I would say, are enormously <clears throat> embarrassed by the position that Churchill took. Not just on India, but in relation to the Mao Mao uprising, the um, anti-colonial actions in Malaya. So, uh, these are all part of that same uh, trend, which is people wanted independence. People wanted autonomy. They wanted an end to colonialism. And you know, Yajur, one thing that is missed out a lot, and I must say, Shashi Tharoor has played an important role in highlighting this, as has William Darylimple, for example. The gross village, the exploitation, and the thievery that took place out of India by the British colonial power. Britain's wealth, including the wealth of the highest of that country, is built on plunder and rape of the colonies. Uh, this is a fact that cannot be denied. And you know, Britain is very peculiar when it comes to facing history. Britain demands from Japan that there should be an apology. It still demands that the Japanese have not sufficiently apologized for the atrocities they carried out against British soldiers and others during World War II. Has Britain ever apologized for its atrocities that it carried out in its vast colonial empire? And the rape of these countries that it carried out over two centuries. You know, I um, have a part in my book where I talk about the visit to Jallianwala Bagh in 1997 by Queen Elizabeth II. And um, she was badly advised. She was a good person, noble person, I would say, in almost every respect. 
when it came to signing the visitor's book, she simply put her signature. Was it too much to have written simple words of sympathy? Like, I was moved by my visit to this memorial. There is no apology in that. You simply say that you were moved by what you saw at that memorial to Jalalwala Bagh. Has Britain said even three words in apology for the four, five, six million people that died in the Great Famine of 1942-44? You know, Avery in his diary says that when he reported to the House of Commons in January 1944 that they believed up to a million people had died in the famine. He said this had no impact in the house. So it's not one individual. It's not the British monarch or a particular prime minister. I would say there is a degree of callousness that went with colonial rule. And this sense of entitlement that we were entitled to this because we conquered these countries. How did you conquer them? You conquered them through duplicity, through all manner of uh, dastardly actions, um, which you would today say amounts to um, uh, violation of human rights. What about the human rights of the people that you colonized? Is there no obligation to apologize? And I would just add to that, that I think that that, that difference in opinion still continues, whether like the example you shared of the Queen's, act, Queen's action at the Jardinwala Bagh, or even when you see today's a lot of people defending the, the, the empire. You, it's because the way the colonial period is remembered yes. in India versus there. While we see that period Actually, let's first of talk about them. They see that period as a period where they were doing, they were there for a good reason. They were doing some, they were managing India for the Indians. And the incidents like Jalniyawala Bagh are remembered as, as aberrations, as excesses of the colonial rule. But the pro fundamental problem with that is that was the essence of the colonial rule. It was ruled by force against the will of the people to plunder them of their resources, um, of all kinds of resources, natural resources, human resources, everything. But it was, it was ruled by force. That's the way we think about it. But that's not, I've learned it over the years from multiple conversations with various fairly educated British people from some of their top schools and universities. The way they think about it is that any such incident, whether the mass extreme violence of 1857 or the Jalmi Mawala Bagh in 1919 was an aberration to an otherwise benign rule for the benefit of Indians. And I think that un until that is, um, uh, we, co we come to some sort of alignment there, there is always going to be, we will always, we will always be amazed at their reactions, you know, like we'll be puzzled, how can they be so callous? It's the way it's remembered there. But uh, let me take, bring in another uh, question from an audience. What was the role of Hindu Mahasabha in the pre-partition communal tension? 
So we've talked about the Muslim side. Could this this viewer brings up the question, the role of Hindu Mahasabha? Yajur, I have not studied this at all. I will say, tell you in honesty, uh, I am not a historian. Uh, my knowledge of uh, history and of this particular period is not a very profound knowledge. And I focused in this book on one particular dimension, uh, the role played by different elements in India, different uh, shades of political opinion, uh, the supporters of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose, for example. I wish I had um, the energy uh, or the wisdom to have tackled Nitaji's role in greater depth. I have not done that because it was not really part of my uh, the, the aspect that I took up. And I obviously have not taken up uh, or presented the full story of the final phase of uh, uh, the departure of the British from India, uh, transfer of power, whatever, partition. And my book is not about the partition. My book is not about the transfer of power. And it is not about the role played by different elements in India uh, that uh, fought against British rule in their own ways, from their own political perspectives. So uh, these are uh, things that uh, one slim book uh, cannot really tackle. I leave it to others to handle this. It's, it, I, I, I think there was something that I found very interesting in your book that Churchill comes across again as fairly um, prescient and astute in his observation that if we were to keep fighting, uh, officially fighting India's independence, Indians would get united against the British and that would be to the detriment of the British rule. But if we allow them that they, yes, we will give you independence, then they're going to fight with each other about who will, exactly. who will what India will be post-independence. Absolutely. If you allow me, let me bring up one, one uh, let me bring up one uh, citation from your book that I would like to share with the audience. So it says, later on 29 July, 1941, Amy wrote about Churchill's view that if Britain had opposed self-government, it would have united the Hindus and Muslims. But when offered something, they would clash. And the more violently they disagree, they prevent our doing anything. Exactly. I think that is brilliant. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is uh, divide and rule. The, the classic formula of divide and rule. Throw a few bones and let the dogs fight over those bones. Uh, let people clash over what little we offer them. Rather than hold out the promise that by this date, we are going to quit. That might uh, possibly even unite them. Uh, now there are, uh, I mean, it was uh, uh, it was a very diabolical uh, set of actions that Britain took. I'll give you one example that uh, you may remember. When uh, Wavell was appointed Viceroy in October 1944, Churchill gave him three instructions. He said, get over or, or, or create harmony among the different political elements of India. Bring economic development to India and eliminate the caste system. <laughs> now, 
This is the same man who used the different shades of communal perspectives to strengthen British rule, who's telling the new viceroy, you resolve these issues. And of course, these issues are almost incapable of resolution. I mean, even 75 years after independence, we still don't know uh, when the caste system might really be eliminated from India. So what I'm getting at is that, yes, some of these were huge issues in which uh, Churchill played a role uh, essentially to manipulate these events to suit his particular approach and his particular uh, method of an eventual exit. But the creation of Pakistan is very much in part a product of British calculation and design. And it is Narendra Singh Sarila's book uh, published, I think, in 2004, which is a sterling work that deserves to be read carefully on this. I, I, I think we were just a few minutes ago talking about how British people should have better education of the colonial, uh, their, their colonial uh, rule and contributions. But I, I think also on Indian side, we should be taught more in history about how the British played to our differences and how cleverly and brilliantly and successfully they managed to make us fight with each other for so long, which obviously ultimately culminated in the division of the country. Very true. But I think that is something that is lacking today. I, I wish those lessons are better learned for the Indians of 2023. Anyway, so... Um, Coming to our final uh, conclusion, I wanted to get your assessment of Churchill. Like Churchill today is remembered um, at, at least across the Anglophone world as the icon of the freedom and liberty. He's considered the hero who saved the liberal world order, democracy from the dark forces of fascism. He, most, I think most recently in this Beautifully, beautiful movie, uh, The Darkest Hour. His role during the last final uh, days was uh, shown and how the man is so committed to democracy and freedom of people. Now, all this is a great story, but somehow the entire attitude of Churchill of denying the people of India of democracy and liberty and freedom and everything he talks about is completely missing there in, in all these conversations that are common in the British and extended Anglo-Saxon world. So I wanted to get your view that um, how this man who's almost deified today in Britain, um, how would you assess his attitude towards India? Does it all boil? Does it all boil down to racism, or you see, or you see in this as the astute politics of the day? I'm not sure if I'm the right person to make a a, a total assessment. You know, at the turn of the last century, um, two thousand and one or two, uh, polls were conducted around the world to identify the most influential, the greatest leader of the 20th century. And Churchill was the man who won handsomely in that uh, global poll. So Churchill is uh, 
his role in World War II cannot in any sense be minimized. Uh, his earlier political life also uh, has great elements of brilliance to it. And there are failures. I think the, the message that should come through is that the greatest leaders also have their flaws. And those flaws need to be examined and not swept under the carpet. That's all I say. I don't um, claim to be able to offer a final or definitive assessment on the life of Churchill. And that's a very big question that many others with deeper knowledge need to examine. But the India story cannot be brushed aside. That's all I say. So uh, thank, thank you, you very thank much you. for hosting me and giving me a chance to present these views. No, I, we, we thank you for uh, joining us and for honoring our platform with your presence. I would encourage everyone to read this book, Churchill and India, Manipulation or Betrayal, and form your own view on how, would, how you would assess Churchill. And please do share your views with us in the comment section or write to us and join us for more such engaging, interesting conversations. My deep thanks to argumentative Indians, uh, to Yajur, to Mayank, and all the others who work so assiduously in bringing these interesting issues uh, in front of uh, a youthful and perhaps also a not so youthful audience in India and abroad. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Goodbye. Okay.